Today on The Novelizers, Arrested Developments Mae Whitman, American Crime Story Impeachments Beanie Feldstein, plus Oscar Montoya and intern Kevin Carter. Now here's your host, Andy Richter. Close your eyes and imagine this. A hazy summer day in Washington, D.C. Gawking tourists taking selfies on the mall. Senators and lobbyists in suits walking to and fro. Suddenly, a scream of panic and then another as a giant spaceship breaks through the clouds and hovers over the White House, blocking out the sun. Without warning, a massive burst of energy explodes from the alien craft, blasting the White House. Windows shatter, columns buckle, and the historic building is engulfed in flames. Now open your eyes. How much did that experience cost you? Nothing. It was totally free. And yet, if Hollywood wanted to put that image into your head, they'd have to pay millions of dollars. That's why books are way better than movies. Savings. Savings we pass directly on to you, the consumer. This season on the podcast, we're consuming the super expensive sci-fi blockbuster, Independence Day. And here to tell us the story so far is my intern, Kevin Carter. Kevin, do your thing. Cool. Well, evil aliens have attacked Earth, and so far, nothing our army has thrown at them has worked. We've tried regular missiles, nukes. We've even tried Will Smith in a jet plane. Even nerdy science guy Jeff Goldblum is out of ideas. All of our heroes are gathered at a bunker under Area 51 just chilling and hoping the aliens get bored and go home, or something like that. Thanks, buddy. Today's first episode was novelized by Jason Reich, writer for The Daily Show, Full Frontal with Sam B. and Robot Chicken, and narrated by Mae Whitman from Arrested Development, Family Guy, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, and get this, she was the president's daughter on Independence Day. Mae, take it away. Independence Day, Chapter 15. Just Call Me Captain Planet. Novelized by Jason Reich. Narrated by Mae Whitman. All right, Connie, we're here. What's this all about? Nimziki was at our ear like a mosquito with a bad tie. Who was he again? Connie could never remember. The chief of staff? A joint chief of staff? Or was a joint chief something else entirely? It didn't matter. Connie was bored. They'd been at Area 51 for a few hours already, and frankly, she thought there'd be more to see. The place was kind of a tourist trap, if she was being honest. Thank God that alien had slaughtered Dr. Oaken and the surgical team a little while ago. Otherwise, the whole trip would have been a total snooze. She sighed meaningfully at Congressman, or whatever he was, Nimziki. I have no idea. David just said to bring everyone down here. Connie had a bad feeling about this. A hatch on the side of the spacecraft popped open, and David emerged, smiling. He'd never rubbed one out inside an alien cruiser before, much less done so while a few dozen of the country's top scientific and military minds waited unsuspectingly outside. It was pretty cool. Plus, it helped clear his mind, readying him for what he was about to propose. David descended the gangway grasping a can of Coca-Cola and summoned every ounce of smugness he could muster. "'People, I think I have a plan,' he said, placing the can carefully on the spacecraft's wing. "'Brilliant,' blurted a general." We'll put soda cans on all of their ships, creating condensation rings. Then, when the aliens have company over and everyone sees the unsightly water stains, they'll die of embarrassment. David ignored the outburst. The general's plan was much better than the one he'd come up with, but David couldn't admit that now. He was off to the races. Major Mitchell, David shouted. See that Coke can on the alien craft? Think you can shoot that thing off? Mitchell grinned. Of course he could. He was born to discharge his firearm indiscriminately in crowded environments. 
Without a word, Mitchell raised his pistol and pulled the trigger. The bullet ricocheted off the ship's force field, pinging wildly around the lab before tearing through an unlucky lab technician's left carotid artery, covering anyone within a six-foot radius with a forceful geyser of viscous crimson blood spray. Mitchell holstered his weapon proudly. Mission accomplished. David pointed. That Coke can, he said, now accessing some hitherto untapped reservoir of arrogance from deep within his smugness reserves, is protected by the craft's shields. We can't penetrate their defenses. <sighs> Amazing work, doctor, snorted Nimziki, who at the very least had to be some kind of deputy assistant something or other. Shields, you say? Who could have known the thing had shields after we literally fired a nuclear missile point blank into it and it didn't even ding the fucking fender? Unflustered, David hopped nimbly over to a nearby laptop computer. Thick computer cables connected the computer to the computer on board the alien ship, presumably allowing the two computers to communicate in computer. My point is, he said, rapidly typing computer into one of the computers and transmitting it by computer to the other computer, if we can't beat their defenses, we have to get around them. David looked up from the computer. Major, one more time. Mitchell didn't need to be asked twice. He turned toward the rear wall. Then, covering his eyes with one hand for effect, he aimed his pistol over his shoulder and, without looking, fired three more slugs squarely into the dead technician's chest. No, I meant the soda can, David said. Copy that, barked Mitchell. Another pull and the Coke can exploded into a shower of shrapnel, the largest piece of which arced gracefully through the room before slicing cleanly through a second technician's anterior spinal ligament. The lab tech crumpled to the floor as Mitchell reactivated the safety on his weapon with a satisfied grunt. God, he was good. The stunned crowd inched forward, stepping over the already forgotten lab workers. How did you do that? demanded General Gray. David cocked his head, a gleam in his eye. I gave it a cold, he said. Or should I say, I gave it a virus. A virus? repeated the president. A virus, said David. A virus? asked two of the generals. That's right. A virus, David said again. There was a strange sound from deep within the top secret bunker, as though in some tucked away vault, a captive alien creature had acquired a drum kit and a pair of brushes and was now improvising a lively country western shuffle. David raised his arms. A computer virus, he began. Good people of Earth! I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this guy's been drinking in friends? I assure you, that's true. But wasted or not, we get one last shot and I'm running hot with this cockamamie notion that I got. I think I found something that might inspire us. So let me tell you about this virus. Connie winced. David was always doing this. Whether he was proposing an audacious plan to save the planet from extraterrestrial invaders or just ordering a foot-long quarter-pound coney combo at the Sonic drive-thru, it always turned into a patter song. Just one more thing to add to the list of reasons they would never work out. Looking around, Connie saw a few lab coats tapping their feet, the military brass scowling but intrigued. Only the president's daughter seemed to be experiencing the same level of excruciating cringe Connie was feeling. The wisdom of children, she mused. Oh well, maybe this time David was on to something. As if egged on by Connie's thoughts, David hopped onto a lab table, knocking over some undoubtedly vital research. Jauntily placing a straw boater on his head, he hadn't been wearing that earlier, had he? 
He continued his pitch. My friends, I can see that look of doubt on your faces. What's he yammering about? I get it, it's space, it's a place where we've never had to face a threat like this. But when I say virus, I don't mean herpes or meningitis, no. It's a program, see, gonna make our enemies say, OMG, those earthlings gonna light us up. We'll be looking like heroes thanks to a little string of ones and zeros they call a virus. General Gray raised an eyebrow. Kid, he grumbled. Are you saying you can send out a signal that will disable their ships? Nimziki jumped in. General, you can't be considering this. It'll never work, he scoffed. David just winked. He placed one foot on the upper frame of a whiteboard, rotating it away from him, then stepped off the table with his other foot to catch the bottom edge of the writing surface as it rose up to meet him. Standing atop the now horizontal whiteboard, he wrote it like a surfboard across the length of the lab. Then, with a half-turn kick, hopped to the floor, flicking the board back to its opposite vertical position, revealing an elaborate diagram of the mothership and its alien fleet. The crowd applauded. Nimziki fumed. With a modest bow, David continued. I hear you, I sure do, Nimziki, and I'm not saying it won't be tricky. I know it sounds daft like a bunch of dumb jive, but we hop in this craft with the virus on a thumb drive, plug it into the heart of the mothership and watch as it spreads to another ship, another ship, another ship, another ship. We won't have long with their ships in limbo, just a tiny window, but with this himbo captain Hiller at the wheel. Shit's gonna get real when their shields drop. That's the moment we go pop, 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 and we won't stop the Earth's on top and the rest of the world will have no choice but to admire us because of that virus. You want us to coordinate a massive worldwide counter-strike with a window of only a few minutes? Nimziki sputtered. Now we'll need some luck and I'm just some schmuck, but sir, all your previous ideas have kind of sucked. Remember Welcome Wagon? How'd that go? Send a guy in a chopper with a spotlight up to say hello? Did that work? Hell no. Dude got dropped right out of the sky. I'm sorry, my guy. That was never going to guarantee humanity's salvation. We ought to try a different calculation from our previous attacks. And as long as the aliens don't use Max, we can smack them back with a virus. Nimziki, who, come to think of it, might have been Postmaster General, stared, mouth agape, eyes agog, safety goggles agoggled. Somehow, David was now wearing a red and white seersucker blazer and gleaming white spats. If it hadn't been for the large boutonniere pinned on one of his wide lapels, Nimziki would have said the kid looked for all the world like one of them old-fashioned candy stripers. For Christ's sake! This wasn't how you won a war! David stamped his foot, and Nimziki nearly choked as two ends of a long cane telescoped out from either side of David's previously empty fist, locking into place with a loud snap. He watched David twirl the fully extended cane over his head. What? Nimziki wondered. The ever-loving fuck, he continued wondering. What's happening? If this was some kind of trick, it was a damn good one. David scrambled up the nose of the alien ship and stood astride the windshield, arms extended as if to embrace his congregation, and got ready for the big wind-up. Friends, I know it's intense. It'll come at great expense, but it's not like the rest of this movie makes sense. Upload that code on the download, then, when the space freaks download. Uh-oh, whoops, it'll mess their ships up, flip the script, and their ships will go tits up. Well, you'd find folks stay down in the hangar. Up there, it's spreading like a banger from Miley Cyrus. Yeah, I'm talking about the virus. So come on, Mr. President Whitmore. You've never seen shit more crazy than this. What the hell am I selling it? Tell me you'll try us. Nothing will get by us. With a heaven-sent virulent government-sanctioned digital spanking, the world will be thanking us. Everybody's banking on us. And all because of a what? 
Virus. Say it again. Virus. What's that smell? Virus. Nothing, because I didn't spell anything. It's a virus. David performed a swan dive off the spacecraft's nose, confident he would be caught and hoisted aloft by his admiring audience. He wasn't wrong. A loud cheer went up. Inside the lab's translucent tanks, deformed and exotic alien skeletons twisted their appendages in a bizarre but not entirely unconvincing imitation of human applause. The group placed David down gently in front of General Gray. Kid, he said, clapping David on the back. It sounds crazy, but if those aliens have the same weakness for internal rhyme that I do, then we're gonna beat their asses but good. Let's do it! The president shook David and Steve's hands, while the rest of the research team and military entourage hugged each other and wept. Inwardly, Nimziki seethed silently. On the outside, however, he went totally mental. Sir, he wailed, chasing after the president, you're making a huge mistake. The only mistake I made was appointing a weasel like you, secretary of defense, shouted Whitmore. Oh, yeah, murmured Connie, louder than she'd expected. From behind her, a tall man with a trim gray mustache cleared his throat. <clears throat> Excuse me, sir, said the man, but I'm the Secretary of Defense. Oh, yes, of course, noted the president. He turned back to Nimziki. Wait a minute, do you even work for me? Well, Nimziki squirmed. Technically, I'm getting college credit. Okay, we're done here, said Whitmore. Connie, have Secret Service put this man in the hatchback of the alien ship. Maybe we can eject him into space as a distraction while we upload the virus. Now, listen up. I want every plane we got fueled up and ready to go. Put out a global bulletin. Let the world know. The United States is launching a counteroffensive. Send a message to every major military on God's green earth and tell them to back the F off. This is America's show, and we don't need or want anyone else's goddamn help. Well said, sir! exclaimed Gray. Sir, if I may, planes are not the problem. What we need are pilots. We don't have enough people to get them in the air. President Whitmore grimaced heroically. Well, find them. Now. Oh, yes, right away, sir. Well, that was pretty cool. Now here's my intern, Kevin, who spoke with someone who worked on the set of the film Independence Day. Kevin, who'd you talk to today? I'm here with Oscar Montoya, who is the dog wrangler for uh, Independence Day. Oscar, how's it going, man? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I could always be better, but you know what I'm saying? I'm not here to, to be sad, so I'm just going to use air quotes and say I'm doing great. Oh, great. That's fantastic. You know, in this space, you know, when you're with me, you can be sad, happy, however you want. I will do my best to navigate this uh, scenario in a way that will make you less sad. So you said you were the dog handler for uh, Independence Day. Could you, could you explain to the audience what, what that is? Uh, well, a dog wrangler is someone who sort of uh, trains any of our furry co-stars on set and sort of tells them where to go, what to say, how to speak, et cetera, like uh, things of that nature. Okay, so I, I have a personal question for you. Oh, ask away. We got Vivica A. Fox, we got her son, and we got Boomer in the car. That's right. They're in the tunnel. Vivica gets out the car. She sees through a rearview mirror 
oh shit, there's hell behind me. So she gets she gets out the car, grabs her son, fuck the dog, and runs. Boomer is in the car the entire time. At no point does Correct. he think to himself, you know what? I should follow my owners. I should mm-hmm. follow them. And and she has to yell his name for him to come there. Was that that's a right. you thing? Because to me, it didn't seem like something a dog would actually do. If you open you know, the door, that's right. dog, they're going to take off running. That's right. That's right. Boomer was supposed to jump out and sort of run away uh, and leave sort of uh, Vivica A. Fox and her son um, just like, you know, like a normal dog would. Like a normal dog, yeah. Exactly. Just sort of like, hey, things are blowing up. I'm getting the fuck out of here <laughs> like a dog would. But, um, you know, I found, I read the script and there was a little bit of resistance on my end. I, I'm like, you know, that that's fine for any other dog, but I don't see Boomer that way. And, and I just don't want to see people see another stereotypical performance of a dog. Bow, wow, bark, bark, plead, plead, piss, piss. I don't want to see that. I've seen that a billion, billion times. This is Independence Day we're talking about. Yes. This is yeah. not just a normal little movie. This is a statement movie that together we can achieve anything. I said... Let the dogs be part of the liberation front, the resistance. Let them be an active participant. And, you know, is the dog smarter than a lot of people who did die in the movie? That's up to you to decide. You saw the movie. One and one equals two. That's all I'm saying. So when you talked about your relationship with Dakota, um, did he ever let the fame get to his head? You know, after Independence Day, uh, Dakota had a three-year deal with a little-known brand called Bacon Bits. Have I heard of it? The Bacon Bits. The, the, yeah, I remember that, that, that commercial. That's, that's okay. Yeah. The dog saying, bacon! Bacon, 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 Yeah, and then we, the camera goes to the perspective of the dog. It would have would have been huge. Mm-hmm. It really would have. Um, we got copy. That was, that was Dakota, but you, they never showed the dog. <laughs> Can you believe that Dakota was cut from the entire commercial. Wow. And I had to train Dakota to speak English. Because believe it or not, that is Dakota's voice saying bacon, 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 bacon. Oh my God. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. So we got the copy um, and Dakota was very enthusiastic about the copy. And then after they, the bacon bites, Dakota was pitching maybe after that, maybe having a soliloquy about uh, the different, like, uh, I don't know, adding dimension to this character. And uh, we wrote a copy and we gave it to them and they said, sure. And and sure enough, we shot it. And then cut to six months later when the commercial airs and all we see, well, all we don't see is the damn dog. Everything else was suspiciously deleted from the commercial. So, So let's get into a little bit more about you, a little bit more about Oscar. How are you now? Like, or is there other dogs you're working with or have you moved on? Like, what's going on with you? I'd like to answer that question with a question. Do you remember your first love? Yes. Yes, I do. Oh, it, it took a moment. I wasn't quite sure. But you do I'm remember, to, yes? I'm to, yeah, I'm trying to remember which, which one it was. But yeah, 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 I do. See, the fact that you're still thinking about this person. That's my relationship with Dakota. Okay. Because yeah, technically, my, my first love was... John Madden football uh, is a video game, but I, I think about it all the time. But all the while, as you're playing a new version of Madden, maybe NFL Blitz, mm-hmm. 
you can't stop thinking about the love of your life, that original John Madden game, huh? That's exactly how I feel about Dakota. Oh, I've trained many dogs in my career. Many, 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 many dogs. Space Buddies? Ever heard of that movie? Uh, no, sorry. Uh, very few have. It's in the Air Bud universe. It's a spinoff. It's a bunch of puppies going to space. It's very cute. I got hired because they knew that I've worked with um, in the realm of space and sci-fi film, Independence Day being a big example of that. And mm-hmm. I had to train uh, seven little pups on how to be adorable. It took me a lot of work. And these dogs, I'll tell you what, are no Dakota. Nothing will ever heal the wound that I have in my heart. A dog-shaped wound. Speaking of movies, I, I hate I hate to do this right now. I'm actually writing a screenplay because um, I'm a writer as well. And oh, I would congratulations. Love, thank you. I, I would love your help with it. Um, I'm writing. I'm writing a movie called Independence Day, but it's going to be it's going to be reversed. It's going to be a, a dog version where they blew yeah, they blew up a Petco. You know, they, they blew up a Petco and they blew up PetSmart. They blew up all of them. And it's like we got to get these people. And the, the funny thing about it is like. It's all dogs, but like you know how we had Boomer as the one dog. It's gonna be one human, and that's gonna be the pet, right? Wait, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry. Let's re- let's pause and rewind and press play. You said they blew up a pet. Who's they? The aliens. It, 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 it's aliens. It's gonna be just like Independence Day, but dog version. Oh, okay, I I, I Oh, I'm sorry. I assumed that the dogs blew up the Petco because Petco is okay. Okay, so these are all dogs that work at the Petco. Live in the Petco? Yeah, they live right. in the Petco. They live in the Petco. Now, I'm not a writer, so I'm not going to give you any notes, but it, okay. Yeah. Just, they, I just want to make sure. Okay. Yes, okay. they live and in the Petco and everything blows up, right? And, and it's like, okay. we got dogs. They Because like you said, it's like they, 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 they when they came out Independence Day, there was only one animal. So now let's write something where the humans be like, oh, no, it's only one human in this movie. It's all dogs. How how you like it now, huh? How do you like I it? Mean, I mean, I, I like that very much. Finally, a dog's movie. Exactly. And that's what it's about. A dog's movie. I love that. I love that. I love that. Who are you thinking of uh, casting as, as the as the human, as the token human? I was thinking like if, if Andy wanted to do something, you know what I'm saying? Since I got a, got a connection with him, I was thinking of having Andy, you know what I'm saying, being in to see if he see if that's something he want to do. I could see Andy as a human for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and, and just and just roll with it. You know, he seems like he'd be a nice person. If he was play if he's a play a dog, he'd be a nice pet. You know, so it, it just roll That's with true. it. You know, see how, that, see how that is. That's very true. How is Andy around pyrotechnics, though? I mean, I feel like he'd get a little skittish. Um, he's he he is a skittish uh, around. You know, saying fire and things like that. But mm-hmm. um, I could just tell him it's all CGI and it's not real. And once once we do it, hopefully we get it all in one take. Oh, fantastic! You know, I do know a human wrangler. I can probably set you up with. Um, listen, I want to thank you for this uh, for this interview, Oscar. Uh, it's been amazing. Um, so I've been Kevin Carter, and please enjoy the rest of this podcast. Our next chapter was novelized by Carolyn Epright, writer for The Tonight Show, and narrated by Beanie Feldstein from the films Booksmart, Lady Bird, and the show Harriet the Spy. Beanie, novelize me. Anastasia Steele pulled Christian Grey's shirt off, sending the buttons everywhere, and creating a ricochet of debris in the sexual frenzy. And hold on, wrong movie. One moment, please. Here we go. The case children are crowded around the smallest television known to man. So small, in fact, that if the aliens arrive now, they take one look at the little crappy TV and go back to wherever they came from. 
How are they expected to watch Frasier on Earth? There's gotta be another galaxy with bigger screens to watch must-see TV on. But right now, the Case Kids are marooned in the middle of Area 51 at night, which sounds a lot cooler than it actually is. There's better ways to spend time than waiting for updates on the impending alien invasion and watching their father take another pull from his bottle. Just as they're thinking, maybe an alien invasion doesn't sound so bad, Major Mitchell stands on top of a nearby Jeep and makes a plea for any able-bodied adults with pilot experience to come forward and volunteer their services in the fight against the aliens. Their dad, Russell, had been a pilot during Vietnam and later had a career in crop dusting. Well, less of a career and more of a side hustle for beer money, after he was abducted by aliens 10 years ago, he'd readily tell anyone and everyone about that experience, which made for some pretty uncomfortable parent-teacher conferences. Surely, though, Major Mitchell, with the full power and might of the United States Air Force, wouldn't need to lean on someone as unreliable and loose-lipped as their father. For God's sakes, he borrowed their tooth fairy money, ate literal cans of beans for dinner, and, and once stole a pack of toilet paper while they were visiting his grandmother in prison. Despite some light misdemeanors over the years, the Case Kids still loved Russell. He had his good points. He taught them how to ride their bikes, tie their shoes, and pretend they'd found a piece of metal in their food so they'd eat for free at Applebee's. And just as they started to convince themselves that Mitchell wouldn't need Russell, they saw Russell convincing Mitchell that he was the man for the job. In all honesty, this was probably the one time in the last decade that Russell's account of his alien abduction wasn't falling on deaf ears. What's more, Mitchell and his team seemed desperate, which meant that Russell Case would soon be going back to space. Meanwhile, Steve and David are back with the missile, preparing their final offensive against the aliens. For two guys with the weight of the world on their shoulders, they are really holding it together. The hair on points, the glasses not necessary, and the muscles small but shiny. Vanity Fair already called and requested an interview with them, but there was no time. If they survive this alien invasion, maybe they can get around to doing that interview. And maybe they can finally open a business together. For years, they've been dreaming about opening a sports bar for kids and adults, with games and delicious food called Dave and Busters. Buster being Steve's nickname. They should probably do that soon before someone else takes their idea. Back to the action. The hangar is a hive of activity, and there's not much time left to save the world. But spirits are high, and everyone seems optimistic. Soon, though, General Gray, that Debbie Downer, reports some unsettling news. When the nuclear missile arrives at the center of the alien ship, they'll only have 30 seconds to get out of the blast zone before it detonates. Uh-oh. The plot, as they say, thickens. But before they can worry about silly things like the end of the world, there's much bigger matters to think about. Like a wedding! Steve and Jasmine have been talking about getting married for years, but they never got around to it. Now seems like the perfect time to stop planning for an alien counteroffensive and start exchanging vows. There's no time for a shower or a honeymoon yet, but th they'll save that for more convenient times, like a Category 5 tornado or a 9.8 magnitude earthquake. Steve and Jasmine's son stands by patiently as the minister begins the ceremony, and soon David and Constance race in to be their witnesses. Dearly beloved, the minister begins. As he goes on, Constance looks at her ex-husband David with new eyes. Yes, they grew apart, and he did accuse her of having an affair with the president, but that was understandable. And she has to admit this whole aliens invading the world thing has brought them closer. Now she has a newfound appreciation for his humor, his intelligence, his reliability, and obviously his hair. 
What's more, he still wears his wedding ring. Is that sweet? Could they ever find their way back to one another? She's pulled out of these thoughts by the minister pronouncing Steve and Jasmine husband and wife. And just like that, the wedding is over. Who knows what David and Constance's future will bring. But right now, the focus is firmly on the war with the aliens. The group makes their way outside the hangar, where President Whitmore is rallying a ragtag group of pilots and soldiers armed to the teeth with AK-47s and other forms of assault weaponry. It's hard to believe that in roughly 25 years, a quarter of these assembled fighters will have a reunion of sorts when they storm the Capitol on January 6th. President Whitmore reminds the crowd that their freedom is at stake, and it's up to this small army to stop the aliens and save the human race. Whitmore goes on to say, We are fighting for our right to live, to exist, and should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We are going to live on. We are going to survive. Today we celebrate our Independence Day. Man, that gave me literal chills. If you could see my arms right now, you'd know I'm not lying. There's not a dry eye in the house as the fighters applaud, cheer, and salute their commander-in-chief. Whitmore himself is surprised by his oratory skills and decides that if he makes it out of this fight alive, he's going to step down from the presidency and become an actor. Politics is too much of a crapshoot profession. Acting is much more stable. Dusk is falling on Area 51, and the final preparations are underway. Crews are running around, climbing ladders, and fueling up planes as the pilots board the mothership in the fighter jets. Everyone looks super cute in their flight suits. Jasmine and Constance are standing next to each other, watching as their men go off to fight the aliens, not knowing for certain if they'll return. What happens if Steve and David don't come back? Should they move in together and raise Dylan as their own? Should they open Dave and Buster's as a tribute to their lost loves? So many questions, so little time. Just as they lock eyes with each other, Jasmine and Constance are brought back to the present by a loud banging sound. Steve has accidentally rammed the mothership into the hangar and the mission looks like it may be over before it's even started. But fear soon gives way to relief as Steve realizes his mistake and reverses direction. Soon he's flying the mothership at warp speed out of the hangar and into the late evening sky. David pops a few Dramamine pills to calm his stomach and nerves, and for good measure he knocks back a few Xanax too. Somewhere out there are real live aliens, and he's instantly regretting his decision to join this mission. But it's too late now. He checks to make sure his seatbelt is secure. He begins to relax when he hears Steve say, Look, no hands! He glances over as Steve has let go of the joystick. He yells, Steve! Thanks, Beanie. And that is all the alien invasions we have time for today. Until next time, Kevin, land this spaceship. Thanks, Andy. And thanks to this week's guest contributors. Jason Reich, Mae Whitman, Caroline Epright, Beanie Feldstein, and Oscar Montoya. More info about all of our guests can be found in the show description. The Novelizer was created by Stephen Levinson, produced by Stephen, Chris Karwowski, Rob Kuttner, and Suchetta's Bokeel. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris. Improv by Christine Bullen. Music by Cole Imhoff. Art direction by Crystal Dennis. And illustrations by Barry Crane. Intro narration by Robin Reed. And interviews by me, Kevin Carter. 
Special thanks to Luke Dennis and Peter Hayes at YSO Public Radio in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Check out thenovelizers.com for more info about the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and occasionally TikTok. If you enjoyed The Novelizers, please support us on Patreon or email thenovelizers at gmail.com to sponsor an episode. Till next time, I'm Kevin Carter, and Novelizers out. <laughs>